Well, good morning. How are you guys doing today? You feeling good? Ready to jump in? Okay, I'm going to be a little honest with you here as we kick off. Can we, uh, can we be honest here as we start? This is a little bit embarrassing for me, so it has to feel a little bit safe to share this. Have you ever thought you knew something? You're pretty confident in what you knew, but when you look back, you're like, oh, I, I guess I was off on that. This happened, uh, uh, this is a couple of months ago. I was, uh, I went on duty, I was checking in, and I, on duty as a police officer. And one of the first things you do, you go into the, the police station, and you, uh, you go to your roll call. After that, there's something called the kit room. That's where they have all the keys to the cars. They have all the tools, equipment that you can check out. So you grab your keys, you grab a shotgun, whatever other tools you're going to grab. Then you go check your car out, put your stuff in the car, and off, to, off on patrol you go. Well, I went in and, and went to the kit room, grabbed my keys, grabbed the shotgun, go to the car, uh, secured the shotgun in the trunk of the car as I was doing a vehicle check. You check the car out, make sure it's all good. Well, this car had a problem, wasn't running right. So, oh, I got to go in. I'm going to switch the car out. I got to go make sure they have a car first. So, um, left the shotgun secured in the trunk. I go in there, uh, and I'm like, hey, do you have another uh, car? This one's a BO. It's, it's not working right. And uh, he's like, yeah, let me check. And so he does. He has another set of keys. So I go out there, and I'm going to grab my stuff. Uh, but I got distracted for a little bit talking. My, my partner grabbed me. We talked. So it was probably about 15 minutes. Get back out to the car. I open the trunk, and my shotgun's not in the trunk. I had the exact same reaction. <laughs> what you just did, I had the exact same reaction. I was like, this is not right. Wait. Because I know I, I, I know I secured it in the trunk. So I shut the trunk. And hoping nobody's looking, I opened it again, like, maybe it'll appear. <laughs> like, you ever done that? Like, maybe it'll just be there again. So, nope, it's not in there. I'm like, dang it, what? I know I put it in the trunk. So I look in the back, what, I put it in the back seat? And I don't, no, I don't ever put it in the back seat. Uh, no. It's either in the thing or in the trunk. It's like, so I'm like, okay, I'm going crazy. So I walk back in. I find my partner. I'm like, partner, did you go switch the shotgun out or whatever already? No, I haven't been to the car. Really? Like, you haven't been there? So I go to the kit room, like, hey, did someone turn a shotgun in? <laughs> you don't ever want to ask that question. That's, that's like a really bad. There's things that you can do that are bad, and misplacing a shotgun is pretty high on the list, right? Uh, so anyway, I'm, like, I am, I'm going absolutely crazy. Go back out to the car again. I check. Open the trunk. Um, it's not there, I, and I'm going crazy. And my partner comes. He goes, let me see. Let me see the keys. And he looks at the key. All the keys have the number of the shop, uh, and he looks on there. He goes, you're looking in the wrong shop. This isn't even our car. Oh, my, it was the one right next to it. The gun was always there the whole time. It never moved. I was just looking in the wrong car. How irritating is that? So irritating. And I was so convinced I was right. I just thought, now someone came and stole a shotgun from the police station. All right, let's play the tapes back. Uh, have you ever been really convinced? You thought you were right, but you really were wrong. This conversation, Mike mentioned, we're going to be delving into a conversation today. Uh, and in Nicodemus's mind, he's one of the key characters. He thought something was so right. Jesus shows how he's so off. But I want to do a quick look back just to get us up to speed. This series is called Revealed. What's revealed in this series? What's the great revealing of the book of John? Anybody? It's Jesus. That's right. It's Jesus Christ. The book of John systematically lays out the case that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He's not an enlightened person. He's not the one who sparked divinity, whatever that means. He's not just a great teacher. He is truly God, truly man. God come in the flesh. I had a theology prof. He said he's God in the bod. Uh, it's Jesus Christ revealed. 
And you see the book of John makes it case, and even as we jump into chapter 3 today, in John chapter 1, he says he was with God before the world began. You have John the Baptist says he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's truly God. You jump into the next chapter, and this is where he does the amazing miracle at the wedding. It, Jesus begins to reveal who he is through a miracle. He takes water, turns it into the best-tasting wine at the wedding. A miracle, attesting to the fact that he is deity. He is God in the flesh. In fact, uh, as it goes on, Mike talked about uh, his temple cleansing, that only God shall have glory. He defends that. In fact, he even predicts his own resurrection, revealing again, this is God in the flesh. This isn't just some ordinary teacher. It's not just a prophet. This is God himself. And it's really interesting. If you look all the way in, if you read through the end of chapter 2, If you have your Bible open to the book of John, look in chapter 2. The last two uh, verses in chapter 2 set up where we're going in chapter 3. This setup, know what's going to go on right here as you take a look at this? Chapter 3 is going to fulfill basically what's kind of highlighted here in verse 24 and 25 of chapter 2. And it's this, that it proves he's God once again because he has the ability to read the hearts of men. He can read it. You don't have to open your mouth and share what's on your heart. God knows your heart. And you see him unveil this several times throughout the Bible. This is one of the classic examples. It's it's even demonstrated here in verse 24, verse 25. It says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Who's them? Well, these are the people at the Passover feast. They saw these miracles. It says they believed in his name, but what really did they believe? It didn't say they committed themselves to that belief. Um, it, you know, it's one thing to believe. It's a whole other thing to commit yourself to it. The Bible says even Satan, the demons believe, but right? It didn't, it didn't count for anything. In fact, you see where he goes with this. It says, for he knew all men. Verse 25, he did not need man's testimony about a man. Why? Because Jesus knew what was in a man. And as you look at verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1, and it just says, and there's a man. And it starts going into it. And you're going to see in chapter 3, he illustrates this once again. He can read the heart of a man. And it's a powerful story. Two key characters. Obviously, there's Jesus. And obviously, God in the flesh. In that day, how would people perceive him? He was already a controversial figure. Uh, he, he just, you know, he basically, he cleanses this temple. That's an uproar. He's doing miracles. That's another, I mean, that's going to catch attention. Side note, do you notice that every time when Jesus is doing miracles, they don't ever challenge the miracles, right? They were obviously of God. They just don't know what to do with him. Maybe he's of Satan, maybe it's this. They just don't know what to do with him. Either way, he's now somewhat of a controversial figure. People are kind of scratching their heads, high on the radar. Then you have Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. The Pharisee, the word actually means to be separated. And this is what these people prided themselves in. It was a group of religious leaders who lived with fierce devotion to following Jewish law. And when I say Jewish law, I'm not just referring to the Mosaic law, the Old Testament that God gave. He, they, they would follow the oral law. What's the oral law? These were hundreds of additional laws that any rabbi would be coming along. They'd say, maybe this is how it's supposed to be followed. And they'd tack it on. They'd add it to the law. And so over time, more and more and more laws start getting built on. And some of them are absolutely crazy as you look at them. What kind of laws are they? Do you know one of them? 
one of the oral laws is if you were a woman, unless you're getting ready to go to church, it's the Sabbath. A woman on the Sabbath is not allowed to look in a mirror. Oh, that would make church real interesting, right? <laughs> Glad none of you took that advice today. What? Why? Because she might see a gray hair and want to pluck it. That was the purpose of the law. How many of you plucked a gray hair today? Yeah, we don't do that. We cover it up now, don't we? Um, there's another law that you're not allowed to eat the egg of a chicken if that chicken laid the egg on a Sabbath. Unless, there's a caveat to this one. It's so good. There's a caveat. Unless you're going to kill the chicken on Monday or whatever, I mean, the day after the Sabbath, and then eat it. Why? Because you're going to punish that chicken for laying the egg on the Sabbath. So then you could eat the egg on the Sabbath if you're going to actually punish the chicken the next day. Do you see the kind of craziness that got built into this stuff? You will never find that in the Bible. They tack it on. They add it on. And so this, it's this huge convoluted system of rule after rule after rule. And these people tried to live it and follow it to the T. The challenge is they got lost in all of their rules. It's a lot easier to eat an egg of a chicken than to love your neighbor, right? And you can see they begin getting lost in the minutiae of things they created. And you know what their problem was? They externalized faith. It was all about the externals. Now, you, we come into this thing. Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. This is the culture he was brought up in. There's something about Nicodemus. He obviously is coming to Jesus in this chapter. Something is stirring. There's got to be a part of him that's truly seeking. He's trying to live this because he wants to be right with God. There's a part of him that's stirring. But you see, he is so deeply entrenched into the system. In fact, it's, he's a Pharisee. Not just a Pharisee, he's one of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin's a ruling uh, class of the Jews. There, there were these Pharisees that, who had ruling authority, 70 of them. So he's on this elite level. Can I just say, he's not just one of the Sanhedrin. Jesus, in verse 10 of chapter 3, identifies Nicodemus as the teacher of the law. Now this is interesting. He has preeminent status among them he's not just a teacher of the law he's like their scholar he's their teacher it's hard to come up with an equivalent of today it's almost like saying he's closest thing to what they would have as a pope he's the most esteemed he's the respected the bottom line is he was the best that israel had that's nicodemus so now you jump in we're going to be coming into chapter three here and you have this amazing conversation where you got nicodemus coming to meet with Jesus to dialogue the most important questions of life. That's why, Mike, this is a big deal. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night. Why at night? I don't know. There's speculation. But do you understand? If you have the, like the most preeminent figure, do people kind of watch what he's doing? Probably. You have this controversial figure, Jesus, it could be he just like, you know, I don't want to have, I, one, I, we don't need crowds around us when we're talking. It's kind of nighttime. It's busy. It's been Passover anyway. Could have just been crazy during the day. Uh, could just be for more anonymity. Who knows the reason? The issue is this, not why, but he came, right? Something in him was drawing himself to Jesus. He went to Christ. Now it says, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who's come from God. Well, how does he know that? How does he know Jesus came from God? 
Well, he just says it. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. Do you see what, in this little conversation, he, said, he called Jesus rabbi. It's a term of uh, esteemment, but it's, he doesn't see Jesus as God. You can get that already. He doesn't catch that. But he knows he's from God because no one else could do what he's doing. So in his mind, there's a good chance he probably thought Jesus was a prophet. Do you know there was a 400-year period? There was no prophets. Time between Old Testament and New Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. was very quiet. So in his mind, he's, he's probably thinking, this is probably a prophet of God. And he wants to have a conversation about it. Um, in, in verse 3, in reply, now catch this. Remember the, what, I, what I mentioned before, which is Jesus begins to answer the questions of his heart. Not necessarily the questions or the statements of his mouth. And you're going to start seeing it lay out right here. Verse 3, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God. Unless he's born again. Well, who in the world mentioned the kingdom of God? Nicodemus didn't. What's Jesus doing? He's responding to the deepest need and question of Nicodemus's life. Do you know for the Jews, the kingdom of God is something that they desired to be a part of? He wanted to be so much a part of the kingdom of God. And you have to catch it. In his mind, he thinks he's been doing everything he could up to this point to be there. He's got to be. If anybody in the land is close, he's close. So in his mind, Jesus is already going, hey, I know you want to be part of this kingdom. And then the next phrase out of his mouth is, you need to be born again. The word again, it's anothen. That's in the original language. It has two meanings. It can mean to be born again or born from above. In fact, that's a more common usage of it. So Jesus is saying, listen, you want to be part of the kingdom, the sphere of salvation? If you're a believer now, you're part of the kingdom of God. There's going to be a literal reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. That's the kingdom of God. The eternal state is the kingdom of God. The whole idea is we want to be part of the kingdom of God. And he's saying, listen, Nicodemus, we're not here to talk about miracles. I know what you want to talk about, which is the kingdom of God and how to be a part of it. Jesus takes this into a whole relationship with God issue right away with Nicodemus. And he says, you want to be a part of it? You need to be born again from above. It's all new. And let me just say, the best way to describe this, he's saying, you need to start over. Because all that you've done here, you, in a sense, born anew means everything that's already created is, is not worth it. You need to have something happen that you cannot do. You've got to be born anew from God, from above. So this is what's already coming down. Um, if you look on your outline, it, there's a portion that says the problem. What's the problem for Nicodemus? Nicodemus's problem, he was focusing on the externals and living in false hope of salvation. That's what he was doing. All those things, all the ceremonial laws, all the oral laws, all the sacrifices, all the tithes, all the offerings. He's doing all those things, focusing on all the externals. And with that, he lived in false hope that he was probably really good with God. That's religion. And that's the danger of religion. What is religion? Religion basically is anything that would deal with external modifications. You can write that down. External modifications. I'm going to give you another way of saying that. It's man's attempt to reach God. That's religion. 
We will come up with ways to bridge the gap, come up with ways to please God, think that we can make up for things in the past. That's the heart of religion, that we can do something to reconnect us with God. And that's what Nicodemus has lived his whole life. This is why for Nicodemus, it's probably harder for him to come into relationship with God because he has this whole convoluted way of thinking than it would be for the prostitute who has rejected God. He has much more baggage he's bringing into this equation because basically it's, we can never, we cannot bridge that gap. That's the whole idea. It's like, it would be like saying, Nicodemus, he thinks he has this great car. He's refurbished it. He's done the interior. He's done the exterior. It's washed. It's clean. He goes, look what I've got. It's probably almost done. Maybe, maybe I just need a little polish here, polish there. And if Christ would look at it, he says, no. You don't need new polish, a little touch up here. You need a new car. You're starting over. Now, you got to understand, in his mind, do you understand how this has got to be tweaking Nicodemus's mind? This is, I mean, this is literally earth-shattering. It levels him to the, to the core. Jesus speaks to the deepest questions of his heart, and it's shaking him deep. So as you go, as we go into this thing, just remember, that's the problem. What's the solution? When Jesus talks about being born again, there's this word regeneration. What's regeneration? The simplest way of describing it is internal transformation. Internal transformation. It is God's work in man. Religion, man's attempt to reach God. Regeneration, God's work in man. Internal transformation. The idea you have to be recreated. That's why John says five times in 1 John, we must be born of God. You're born from above. That's the whole heart, the idea. We need to be recreated. You don't become a new person by changing your behavior, but by being changed from the inside out. Do you heard that talked about a lot here? Do you heard Pastor Mike mention that a lot? The inside out, this is the heart of it. You can change behavior all you want, but unless a work of God comes and does something within you from the inside out, all that work is meaningless. And do you know the challenge is it's still easy to fall into the temptation thinking that if we focus on all the externals we're set you could go to church you could tithe you could go plant trees you could go save whales that's great you know but let me just tell you it doesn't get you any closer to god you need something from above internally changing the very core of who you are that's what jesus is talking about verse four how can a man be born when he's old Nicodemus asked, surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, Nicodemus, obviously, he knows he's talking on a spiritual level. Jesus is. He's basically probably saying, you know, I don't think this can happen to me. I'm too far along. Jesus says in verse 5, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Interesting phrase, born of water and the spirit. Different ideas to what this means. Whole thing is like, hey, what's the context of this thing? What would probably come into Jesus' mind, Nicodemus' mind as they're doing this? That's the best way to try and interpret this. If you can let the Bible interpret the Bible, you're in, you're in good ground. There's been some confusion what this probably means. Some said, well, maybe it's they're referring to physical birth, born of the water and the spirit. Challenges, even during that day, they never referred to like the amniotic fluid as water. Uh, it was, it's a different terminology. Most likely not at all that. Um, some think, well, maybe this is Christian baptism. Well, that's a hard stretch, too. Nicodemus doesn't even know what Christian baptism is. It's not there yet. 
So it's a stretch to think of what that is. And saying that you need to be, it would basically be saying you need to be baptized. And that external action is going to give you salvation. It's a little opposite of the very core of what he's saying. And if you look at verse 16 and verse 36 of chapter 3, it says, no, it's belief alone. In fact, Jesus says, I didn't come just to baptize. He didn't baptize people. His emphasis is it's an internal work of God that happens when someone believes. It's a powerful thing. So what in the world is water and spirit? Here's an idea. And it, this one seems the most compelling. You know, he, remember who he's talking to. This is the preeminent teacher of the Old Testament. You got that? This is the teacher of the law. For Jews, there was a promise and a covenant that was promised that they knew about. They were anticipating it. When uh, John the Baptist in uh, John chapter 1, verse 33 says, listen, he's coming and he's going to baptize you with the spirit. There's someone that's coming. There's something new that's coming. There's a new era that's coming. This is, this is most likely a reference to a promise found in Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel chapter 36, and uh, you can turn there or you can look on screen. But just so you know, even in the Old Testament, water often symbolized internal purification. It was an external thing that symbolized something that was happening internally. And in chapter 36, let's take a look at this one. This is, this is the new covenant, and it was a promise for Israel that they'd be experiencing. There'd be one day of a new way of relating to God. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. Do you see that? He's going to do the cleansing. And from all your idols, I will give you a new heart. Born anew, born from above. And put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone. And give you a heart of flesh, a tender heart. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There's a promise that a day's coming that God will come and literally give a new heart to his people. When Jesus drops these words, there's a great chance that Nicodemus, the preeminent teacher of the Old Testament, with this promise that they looked forward to so much, when Jesus uses this language, probably a great chance his mind goes right back to it and there's a good chance Jesus is basically laying out you're looking at the fulfillment of this promise there's an entirely new way of relating to God you need to be born from anothen born from above born again there's a new way of relating it's powerful isn't this good stuff this is powerful um the truth is clear it's from God and in, in verse 6 this is, Jesus goes on, and again, probably speaking to the heart of Nicodemus here, this is where he goes, listen, Nicodemus. And it's, imagine his thoughts. He's got to be thinking, man, there's got to be rules. I've got to see it to believe it, all these things in there. And Jesus, speaking to the very struggle, heart of Nicodemus, is like, Nicodemus, listen, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. What does that mean? Your flesh can try and do all these things to bridge the gap between you and God. But in your flesh alone, you'll never make it. You need the work of the Spirit of God to change your very spirit. That's what we need. So he's saying, it's again, listen, all those things you're trying to do, you can't bridge the gap. You need something from above to do it within you. Spirit gives birth. And we see that principle in life, don't we? It's still, it even holds true in daily living. You know, if you're, gonna, if you're in a conversation with someone... You, you start getting frustrated with them. You start, you ever get, in, how many of you have been impatient this week? All right? You ever, impa- you ever want to just kind of react in those moments? Oh, man. Now, when you react, does that bring, does that usually make the relationship better or worse? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How many of you have experienced that? 
uh, in a marriage. Yes. How many of you experienced that with a kid? Okay. You know what goes on. So when you react in the flesh, what's it going to produce? More flesh. Imagine if the Spirit of God takes over. You're, oh, you're just fired up. You just want to lash out. You're yielding like, Lord, you better give me something that I cannot give. And he does it. It's either keep your mouth shut or maybe he gives you a word of grace. What's that do to a relationship? Because flesh brings flesh. Spirit of God brings the spirit. We see it in daily living, but so much more so even within salvation. You know, it was interesting watching growing up. I got to watch my father. We attended a church growing up, um, always a church. I was pretty much born in a pew. Um, growing up, it was, a, it was a traditional church, a Lutheran church, and I did find the Lord there. And, but I remember watching my father for these years, attending. And, he, you know, he was doing all the outward things, you'd guess. You know, he was going to church. He made a habit of giving a portion of the income to the Lord. He was doing these things. Even as a kid, can I tell you, I used to truly wonder about his salvation. There's a sense of discernment. I just wondered. I don't know. I watched him. In high school, my dad was invited to go to a men's retreat with a, another church, and he ended up going. Rosie Greer happened to be speaking. Solid believer. And during that time, Rosie Greer lays out the whole idea of salvation, what this is, the idea of being born from above, born again first time it clicked for my father out of all of those years and on his knees he gives his heart to the lord there's something from the spirit that gave birth to his spirit when all those years of externals never did anything it was something from above and i saw the changed man i saw it even to this day he's one of the most generous people i know by far he will give his life away that's what he loves You'll see him around here. He serves. He, he does his thing. Uh, you'll see him on tractors across the way. My mom will be entailing a little lawnmower or whatever. They just love serving behind the scenes. But he, he has been given a heart of a servant because there's something from the spirit that has taken hold of his life. Do you see the heart of what Jesus is getting at? Verse 7. Now, he knows this is hard for Nicodemus to hear. He says, you shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. In fact, Jesus illustrates that, hey, sometimes there's things you can't see, but the real, he uses wind as an illustration. It's even a wordplay in the original language. The word for wind and spirit is the same word in Greek. It's pneuma. And so as you look at it, he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. That's how the Holy Spirit, spirit is. You can't see him, but you can see the results. The work of God is an inside job, but stand by. You're going to see powerful things come out of it. And let me just say, the day you receive Christ, there is a huge change in your life. Whether you feel it or not, it's radically different. It's radically new. You become a new person. Um, if you've read through the Old Testament before and you read these stories, um, who are some of the great Old Testament characters? Anybody? Moses. What's another one? Abraham. What's another one? David. Daniel. Okay, all those ones. We got, and we can go on and on. Now, there's interesting, God would always make it really clear, make a huge effort to say, listen, for his people, he wanted them to know something. He wanted to know that I am with you. That was the heart of God. I'm with you. He would say it over and over. Hey, don't be afraid. Why? For I'm with you. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know how it all works out. You just need to know this one thing. I'm with you. 
You're all right. I go before you, behind you. Your sides are covered. I'm with you. In fact, you see it in the Old Testament. Remember when they'd go through the, they'd have the pillar of, uh, or the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. God's with them. Even when Jesus came, what did, his name was called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's powerful, right? Powerful name, God with us. That's who Jesus was. Well, let me just say, when you jump to the New Testament, that language with God begins to dissipate for an even higher level of language and higher level of relationship. With God gets replaced with in you. It's powerful. And you see it all over the place. It's no longer God is just with us. He is what? In us. And we're in him. This is a work of the spirit of God born anew inside of us. That Jesus died, he rose again. He says, even that power will be within you because I am in you. Now, this is huge. And this is key. Because can I just say something? Is the Christian life easy to live? It's hard, seriously. You ever read the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians? Man, it's this thing where it's a, it's a phrase. It refers to character qualities that you will always respond loving, joyful, patient, kind, gentle. You'll have great self-control. Anybody lost self-control this week? <laughs> Isn't this? A, it's really an embarrassing list. It's a challenging list. Can I say something? The list has never been intended to make us feel like we can never achieve. That list of character qualities is meant to give us hope for the very thing that God will be creating within us as he works his life out through us. That's what we're becoming because God is within us. And a lot of times if you look at those lists and get a picture of this is what the Christian life is, it freaks people out because the first thought in the mind may be this, I will never be able to make that. I can't live up to that. You don't even know me. Like, you have no clue I can't measure up to that. It's never been about you measuring up to that. That's the whole struggle of Nicodemus. He thought he was measuring up. We never measure up. That's religion. He says it's a new way of relating. It's being born anew, born from above, where I come from within you. And the things that you lack in your life, you're able, not able to even accomplish, that I'm calling you to accomplish, are the very things I will accomplish in and through you. This is the new relationship. And it's good stuff. It's powerful stuff. It's living. How do we live this out? You know, that's why a lot of times this is a, such an important topic. If you've accepted Christ, you've ever done this. I remember as a kid, I did this over and over because I was afraid I didn't do it right. You know, I'm freaked out. I don't feel something. I, I should be like, I don't know. Something should be shaking in me or something. I don't know. But I, I used to be afraid of that. Um, or even the tempting thoughts of, man, I, I don't think I can handle this. This is over my head. I, this is way too big. This is above my pay grade. I can't handle this pain one more day. I can't handle this stress another hour. You know, all those things, it speaks to a life that is impossible for us to live. But the whole idea is we don't try to live that. It's Christ living it through us. That's why the deeper sense of relationship of Christ in you is so much more powerful and deeper. That's why the first thing on your outline, if you're taking notes, it says living the solution. Number one is this, recognize your new identity. What's one of, if we're going to live this thing out, one of the most important things is if you follow what Jesus just laid out, that you are literally born from above, by belief in his name, committing your life to that, he says there is something that's radical that changes the very core of who you are. And you may not feel this, but it is absolutely clear, absolutely true. 
you will still look the same. Uh, if you like Wheaties, you'll still like Wheaties, right? Uh, if you have uh, a streamlined body like mine, you'll still have your great streamlined body. If you got a great personality, you probably have a great personality. If you like to ride motorcycles, you'll probably still love to ride motorcycles. God will use all those things. That's not the piece that's changing. But your identity has genuinely changed whether you feel it or not. And we've got to hold on to this. We've got to believe it. We've got to understand it. Um, the, uh, I, I, I've done a um, bunch of weddings, and it's, I, I've talked to people like, do this wedding, and right afterwards, they're like, oh, man, I don't feel like I'm married. Like, you're getting ready to walk in the reception. I was like, no, trust me, you are married. Like, <laughs> it's about as married as you're going to get right here. It's not going to go. You don't get more married as time goes on here. You are married, officially. Whether you feel it or not, it's reality. It's true. Like, you're in. Like, there's a, see that ring? That's your reminder. You're officially in, okay? Uh, God has given us reminders all through here. Um, and, and if you look on screen, here's a couple key scriptures for us. Um, these, these ones speak, first two especially speak of what our identity piece that's new. For 2 Corinthians 5, 17. There if anyone, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, what's the next two words? New creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You have a new identity because you're a new creation. Galatians 3.26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? This is an identity piece. You're no longer an enemy of God. You're his most beloved. You're a child of the king. A prince or a princess of the king is a powerful place to be. You're a son or a daughter of God. That's identity. You see, identity pieces are so key because even when we struggle in our behavior, your identity does not change. That's the fear we all carry. I messed up. I've just, I'm now out. You know, understand, God's taking us in process here. If you're truly seeking God, and I'm not saying, if you're living in a pattern of open, blatant sin, you better start checking yourself. I'm saying, as you walk in a place where you, you don't, like, if you feel remorse, you're like, man, I don't know, you're really trying to walk, you're really striving. Let me just say, your identity is secure in Christ. That's why he says, hey, remember that great scripture? Hey, what can separate you from the love of God? It's found in Christ. Death, life, angels, demons. Principalities, powers, remember all that? The whole point is nothing can separate you from that because he's given you a new identity. Satan can't change that. Your circumstances can't change that. You are secure in Christ. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What's he saying? Hey, you're my workmanship. I am forming and shaping your life. The circumstances that I allow you to be in will shape your character, and it will cause you to draw on me, lean on me in everything that you lack so I can demonstrate in and through you that I can live the things that you lack through your life because I'm alive and real. In fact, he's making you as a testimony to everyone around you. We are a work in process. You are a masterpiece of God. Ephesians chapter 2. This is uh, awesome stuff. I, here's another way of thinking of this. Have any of you ever studied your gene genealogy, done like a family tree or anything like that? This would be an interesting one if you, we could try and track like a spiritual genealogy because it'd almost be like a literal break somewhere. Because 
let me, here's a his scripture. This is in Colossians 1.13. It says, for he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son he loves. Did you catch that? He rescued you out of this kingdom of darkness. You are now in the kingdom of Christ, the son, Jesus Christ, the father loves. You're taken out. You're put in something new. You have a new identity. Your genealogy has changed. In fact, the language of the New Testament speaks of this all over the place. Place. Look at uh, Ephesians 2. It's on screen. You can follow along there or in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. I want you to pay attention to this language. I'll, I'll emphasize it. There's past tense, present tense. It says this. As for you, speaking to people who have come into saving relationship with Christ. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our nature. He says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. What did we used to be, according to this? We used to be an object of wrath. Why? Because when we were born, you know, there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians that says, for in Adam we were born, but we were all born dead. Because we were born in sin. In a genealogy, basically, that is flawed and taken away. A spiritual genealogy that's broken. So it's not just, you know, and it's proven the fact that none of us has been able to live a perfect life. Bible just lays it out. Listen, have you ever disobeyed anything even once? You're already out. It's a demonstration of the very core of who you are. You need a new genealogy. That's why in that same verse it says, in Adam we all die, in Christ we're all alive. This goes on. It says, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, <clears throat> God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. We're already alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. You've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, past tense. You're already raised with Christ, positionally, with God. What's that mean? It means before God, how God sees us as, as what Christ has done for us, because he is within us, we get, in a sense, we get to benefit of that. We are raised with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms. There's a lot of language in the Bible about this. It says you were dead, but now you're alive. You were lost, but now you were found. You were in darkness. Now you were in, in light. First John 3.10 says you were a child of the devil. Now you are a child of God. Is this good? This is good stuff. This is so key. In fact, this is what gets real fun. When you start going through the New Testament and you start looking at all the ways it describes the identity of someone who is uh, a child of God, a believer, it blows your mind. There's so many of them. I, I'm not giving you all. Just take a look. Here's a few. I'm just going to rattle these off. Don't try and take notes. You will not keep up. Here we go. Just take a look. In Christ, you're Christ's friends. You belong to God. You're a member of Christ's body. You are assured that all things work together for good. You are a citizen of heaven. You're hidden with Christ and God. You're born of God, and the evil one cannot touch you. You are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. It means he's made it capable for you to live the things he's calling you to live. You are holy and blameless, positionally before God. That's how he views you. You have redemption. You have been forgiven. You have purpose. You have hope. You are alive with Christ. You have grace and peace in abundance. 
You have direct access to the presence of God at all times. You are a member of God's household. You are secure. God's power works through you. You can approach God with freedom and confidence. You know there's a purpose for your suffering. You can mature spiritually. You are promised eternal life. You are chosen and dearly loved. You are blameless. You are protected. You are born again. You are a new creation. You are qualified to share in his inheritance. And you have everything you need in Christ for everything you face in life. I didn't write that. But you know what? That is a sampling of what we're described and how God describes us. This isn't feel-good stuff. You can go to any bookstore and find the self-help section, and you can find a lot of tapes, spend a lot of money on how to be a better you or whatever. And you're going to get a lot of things, how to change your behavior, look in the mirror, ten, say ten times, I'm wonderful, I'm wonderful, whatever. You know what? However you think, whatever, we need to know what God thinks. Adjust our life to that because this is our reality. And whether we, you know it or not, that's why this is so key to know. We don't, you know, God's given us feelings. They are a blessing. But they can be a curse if we try to live our life based on them. That's why Jeremiah 17 says, listen, you know your heart is wicked. It's deceitful above all things. It means it can trick you. It'll feel right, but it's actually wrong. Don't judge your life based on your feelings. Use the truth of God's word to reveal what is actually true. That's the heart of God. Here's the key thing in this. You know, you don't become a new person by changing your behavior. You discover the person you already are in Christ, and then you adjust your life accordingly. Do you see the subtle difference in that? The change in the behavior doesn't make you the new person. God makes you new when you surrender to him. And you start adjusting your life accordingly. Remember who you are. You have such a high honor. If you could have a business card, and truly you are an ambassador of God, called to live a holy life. That is not supposed to make you freak out or feel condemned. It's a calling to who he's calling you to be. That is the highest privilege God can give. And if you're in Christ, you've got it. And that's what gets embarrassing. Oh, man, who am I? Look, I forgot. You, we forget this all the time. Because the truth is, our identity is always under attack. When we look at our life circumstances, our thoughts, everything else, just, oh, I'm, I'm not worth anything. Oh, I can never do this right. I can never make it. And we could go through the whole list. Those are identity challenges that God wants us to be abundantly clear on who he is because that's our supply, Christ in us. You know, it's, it's, here's another wa subtle way of saying it. It's not that we um, are a sinner who can potentially, occasionally do something good, do a saintly thing. No, you know the way the Bible lays it out? No, no. You are a saint who can potentially, occasionally fall into sin. Remember who you are. Remember, recognize your identity in Christ. And secondly, you, how do you continue to live this out? You walk with Christ the same way you received him. You walk with Christ the same way you received him. Well, how do you receive Christ? What has that been about? How do you walk with Christ? It's a very famous scripture. A lot of you have probably memorized it. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourself it is the gift of God so that no one can boast. How are you saved? By grace through, say it again, how are you saved? By grace through faith. What is grace? 
Just the simplest way, we're not going to get in big theological terms, just bottom line. There are things that only God can do in your life. When God reaches in and does something that you could never do, that is the grace of God at work. It's God at work. That's salvation. When you need salvation, you can't do external things to make it happen. You need grace of God to do something internal you could never do. Grace of God. You know, salvation is being saved by God in every situation we encounter. Because as you know, every, remember how we've been talking? Like, you know, life is going to throw you some curves. Tomorrow may be a rough day for a lot of you. How many of you think you may need God tomorrow? You need grace. You need the work of God within you to do what you cannot do. How do you live this Christian life? The same way we receive Christ, by grace, through faith. The work of God that he started in us, he wants to continue to do that. That's how, that's how he does it. And the very heart of it is he wants to make us like he is. Do you know, this is great. I'm going to give you something to help encourage each other. Um, when I m- meet with people, if I talk to them, counsel them, mentor them, um, there's recurring themes that come in. In fact, I talked to somebody last night for a while after the service, and it's part of a question that comes in here. It's like, I- as you look at your life right now, uh, what would, how would Christ live your life if he were in your place? What are the things right now that you feel that you are lacking in order to live out this Christian life in your experiences, in your circumstances? What part of your character is being challenged? Those are the very parts that God desires to gift us in and to create in us. We can't force it. We can't make it happen. We need grace. But part of it is getting a very clear picture of who God is calling us to be in our circumstance and in our life. If you're encouraging each other, it's like praying. Hey, have you asked God, how do you want me to stand? How do you want me to be praying? How do you want me to be looking at the situation? That's a life of surrender that we can be open to the grace of God in our life. Does that make sense? He wants, you know, you have a high and rich inheritance. He desires to give that. We need to live by grace, and you seek it out. And stand by and watch what God does. That's by grace. And then what's faith? You know, another way of saying faith is active trust. You just put your active trust in it. Um, we all see this stool, right? It's a great stool, huh? It's used weekly here. Mike sits on it frequently. Uh, do you believe this stool will hold me up? I do too. Whoa, easy. Do you see that? She laughed at that. Do you see that? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. That hurt right here. We'll talk after. I'm messing with you. Um, okay, here's a stool. You see the stool right here. I can really, I can believe, like, yeah, this, this stool will hold me. When I sit in this stool, why are you so nervous? It's going to hold me. <laughs> see? You, your faith was challenging. This is active trust. I, I'm, I'm literally leaning in. I rest on that. On my own, I could not sit in this position very long, right? On my own power, I could not maintain this position without a stool. But I have a stool that can do for me what I could never do on my own. And so I will actively put my trust in this stool. In the same way, how do you receive Christ? By grace, that God can do a new work, born anew, within your life. 
as you put your faith in Christ for the work he has already done. He's died, he's risen, given new life. And by faith, you will commit yourself to leaning into that and trusting in that and not in your own strength, not in any external thing you can do, not trying to make this thing up on your own. You will live it there. So how do you how do you accept Christ? By grace through. How do you live this Christian life? By grace through faith. Why don't you bow your heads? You know, that's just as we reflect on this chapter, it started out with. um, It it was kind of predicting what Jesus is going to do in this conversation with Nicodemus and the conversation. He's listen, I'm going to read your heart, Nicodemus, and he speaks to the deepest need of Nicodemus's life. He spoke to the deepest questions of his heart. Um, And he proves he's God through that, too. Now, there's a very real sense that God, even this morning, he is unchanging. He still speaks to hearts. There's a chance that you've been brought in here. You may be going, I don't even know why I came to church today, but you're catching on now why God brought you. Because he may be calling you just like he was calling Nicodemus. And we do know that Nicodemus comes to a saving faith, at least by chapter 19 of John. But he's calling. He may be speaking to your heart that you need help that you could never get on your own, but by grace, through faith in Christ, he desires to give that to you today. If that's you, you just pray in your own mind as I lead you in prayer. Uh, Jesus Christ, you are God in the flesh. As I'm hearing these stories, I believe that. But I want to just take it from just a thought in my mind to say, I'm going to put my active trust in your ability to save what I could not save of myself. I acknowledge the ways I've wandered. I I do acknowledge my sin, and I cry out that you would give me a new identity in Christ. You would take my heart of stone, uh, give me a soft heart for you. You would forgive me of the ways I've fallen short of what you'd expect, and that you'd give me new life. You would reside within me. I accept what you did on the cross, the resurrection to prove you are God, cover my sin, and I give you my life. You know, if you've prayed that, Your identity has changed. It's already done. The things we just talked about, that's you. Next thing he says, he says, minute someone's get saved, it's like, hey, get baptized. If you want information on that, put that on your card. We want to talk to you about that too. And I want you to write that on your card that you've you've you have been born again. We will send you stuff to help you on your journey. I also want to pray for every believer in this room. You can keep your heads bowed, but how many of you would just admit that this is a week you know you will need grace from God? You need God to do something through you that you, on your own power, through your own character, you just need help. How many of you would admit that? Good, me too. Let me just pray. Father, this is a week we just say by grace that you would do something within and through us that only you can do. You will get all the glory and credit for it. You'll give us the right attitudes, the right character. In and through us, you'll be able to do your work and expand your kingdom that we'd realize who you've called us to be. So I pray grace and faith over all of them, and myself as well. I pray in your name. Amen.